0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is executive art director Mike Peckham. Hey, Ed. What's up, my friend? Not much. It's a cold, gloomy, yucky April day. (laughs) Um, And I'm exhausted, but I'm going to pretend that I'm full of energy. All right. Let's do it. So if you dig this podcast, spread the word to your fellow woodworkers, stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, a five-star rating. You can also catch us over at iHeartRadio. Um, So this week... Uh, I need my, for the Segway segment, I need my breaking news theme. Uh, this came from podcast listener Andrew Verbosky. Uh, this is a real news story.
1: And it might explain why Matt is not here today.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, so the headline is, Cops, colon, naked man high on Flacca, whatever the heck that is, ran through traffic to escape imaginary killers. A Florida man who stripped off his clothes and ran through Fort Lauderdale traffic to escape imaginary killers hot on his heels was high on Flaca, the synthetic drug that appears poised to supplant bath salts as the leading cause of hallucinatory havoc, cops report. Following his apprehension, Matthew Kenny told police that after smoking the synthetic drug, he began fleeing pursuers who had stolen his clothing and were intent on murdering him. Kenny explained that he would rather die than be caught by these unknown people, according to a Fort Lauderdale Police Department report. Officers found Kenny, who was naked except for a pair of sneakers, (laughs) running in traffic along Broward Boulevard early Saturday morning. Kenny explained that, quote, if I got hit by a car, they would stop chasing me, end quote. Now, uh, that's a funny coincidence, but even more coincidental is the fact that our Matt Kenny is indeed originally from the Sunshine State. I mean, this is
1: incredible. Coincidence? Wow. I think not.
0: (laughs) And Matt's not here today. So Matt, stop smoking, what is this called again? Flacca? I mean, really, you couldn't come up with a better name for a synthetic drug than Flacca? That's, I don't know. All right. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Hold on, let me shuffle my papers like Walter Cronkite. Make all those sounds. Yes. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So uh, let's just dive into this. Uh, The first question... Uh, for today comes from Chris and Chris writes I'm building my first workbench and trying to decide what type of vice to use since I don't have the skills or tools to make a full laminated maple top I'm using a pre-made maple top sourced from a local company it's an inch and three-quarter thick I plan to add a front apron inch and three-quarter thick maple, six or seven inches tall, to the top, and I'm considering either a conventional metal woodworking vise or splurging for a twin-screw vise, Veritas or Lee Nielsen, should I save my money and get the less expensive vise, spend the remaining on a good dovetail saw, or go for the extra cost of the twin-screw vise? Um,
1: Great question. Indeed. Um. Chris, it sounds like you're on your way to building a a nice little bench. So, um, oh, you don't have I think it was basically 24 inches wide by 16 inches long. 16 inches long. So five inches, I mean, five feet long. Nice little bench. Um, Sounds like, okay, so you're building your first bench. Um, The twin screw vise is really nice. and if Matt were here, he would uh, wax poetic about the virtues of a twin screw vice and how a normal cast iron vice is is basically useless in a wood shop. Um, a lot of us, including myself, um, have been making do with a cast iron vice on our bench for um, you know twenty or thirty years. So they can uh, they can be of very good service. Uh, cost is an issue. I think a bigger issue where you're at is um ease of installation Mm. in that a cast iron vice basically you're bolting to the bottom of your bench you probably have to block it out to get the vice level with the top of the bench it's no big deal and your front apron in essence becomes the inside jaw of the vice that's a a really nice extra little step to take when you're installing a cast iron vice so you cover
0: the you cover the inner jaw with the apron yeah
1: you notch out the inner apron stick it on um it's it's still basically it's an afternoon project to get this cast iron vise in place a twin screw vise basically when you buy in the the yeah. vise it, it comes it's a it's a plastic bag full of bits and parts and, and a chain things and yeah your bicycle chain yes. and it's scarying what am i doing and with eccentric circles and keyway <laughs>
0: slots to cut and
1: yes um, yeah, depending whether you make your own jaws or not or, or buy pre-made jaws, uh, it can be um, a hearty endeavor to get these installed and to get them installed correctly so that the jaws open and close um, exactly in parallel. parallel. Yes. Uh, again, nice to have. Um, kind of a tough feat, and if
0: it's also a bit—that's a big vice and a bit of overkill for a bench and a top of this size. It seems
1: kind of like a. Big old outboard motor on a little inflatable raft, kind of a thing. I would say go with a cast iron vise now, especially since this is your your first bench. What's really important? Get your bench done, get a vise on it, and start woodworking. Um, because uh, the thing I am always disappointed to see is when people make a big old workbench as a first project. And while it's an admirable um, endeavor, endeavor. Thank you. Uh, I don't like it to be a stumbling block to really getting involved in the craft. So I always say your, your first workbench should be something you could bang together in a weekend or so. And then start woodworking. And the more you work, the more you define what you want to make and how you want to work, that's really going to dictate the next bench you want to build. And it's probably going to be different than the bench you start with. So I go cast iron. What do you think, so Ed? So
0: for 120 bucks, between 120 and 150 bucks, you can get a, a good... Cast iron vice with quick release and a little metal dog that pops up on the outer jaw, which I don't use too often, but when I've needed it, it's been very handy because then you can pinch something between that little dog that slides up and yep. then a dog hole that you have across uh, the bench top from the vice. Yes. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is interesting because we're getting ready to start shooting the next video workshop series uh, this coming Monday, and it's going to be. Um, it it I, I don't want to give it away but it will involve the installation of a twin screw vise okay so it's a workbench of some sort i'm not going to tell you what what it's going to be like but it involves the uh a twin screw vise and uh <laughs> when i look at those instructions oh, yes. i'm like oh god no way <laughs> what uh so yeah stay away from that like the plague um all right so well wait a minute hold on yes. a minute you've never had the the urge, potentially, to install one of these things in your shop? Oh
1: yeah. Um, like I said, I've made do with the cast iron vise um, for a long time, and the, the biggest drawback is it's got a screw which is centered on the vise mm. face, which means if, you're, if you have a long piece of stock clamped vertically in the vise, it's got to go on one side or the other of that screw, which means as you tighten it, those jaws, they want to pinch on one end, and then the workpiece tends to pivot. So. Basically, I always keep a little spring clamp around. I grab a piece of scrap the exact same width of my stock that I'm clamping. Throw that in the opposite side. It's fine. It's easy. I do it basically every time at the workbench. So it's not a non-starter. Matt would say, oh, that's a horrible thing. I hate that. I like the, the twin screws where I can clamp a workpiece in between and then never have to worry about it. He's absolutely right. So,
0: um, Yeah, but officers found Kenny <clears throat> who was naked except for a pair of sneakers running in traffic along Broward Boulevard. Yes. So I wouldn't take anything he says seriously. No, in a,
1: a couple of schools I teach at, they have nice um, Lee Nielsen benches with Lee Nielsen twin screw vices. And after a week spent using those benches, oh, <laughs> I'm spoiled. It's really nice. So, yeah, my next, my next bench, um, I am looking at a twin screw vice. Ooh. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, next question comes from Matt, not ours, who is in a detention <laughs> cell somewhere in Florida. Um, we've got a major crisis in our shop. Those tiny little pigtails or swirl marks, as some say, appearing on our doors, frame and panel. We almost always stain our doors so the swirls are even more
1: pronounced. Yeah, that do it.
0: We usually start with the drum sander, then hit it with an orbital sander, 100, 120, and uh, stop sanding at about 150, sometimes 180, depending on the wood. Either way, we still get swirls. We usually have two to three guys sanding about 40 to 50 doors, so I know there are some inconsistencies. I've been told we just need to go to a higher grit to be swirl-free, but at a certain point, stain won't soak into the wood and will become lighter than our sample door that the customers have picked. Basically... Everyone in the shop has different theories on how to eliminate the swirls. For me, I think there's a better way. Could we sand the way we normally do, but finish with a card scraper? Or should we be using some sort of well-tuned smoothing plane? What do we do? Help! Exclamation point, exclamation (laughs) point, exclamation point. point. All right, this guy Uh. needs help.
1: Yeah, great question, Matt. And it's a a, a typical problem when sanding. Um, The solution is kind of twofold, and it's pretty simple. the swirls are coming from your random orbit sander, which you're doing after your drum sander. And the swirls are caused by the the pattern uh, that the orbit sander works in. And you're getting the squirrel the swirls for probably two common reasons. Um, we tend to uh, manhandle our random orbit sanders uh, in ways that they're not intended to be used. First, I like
0: to push mine down to get the sand as hard more as effectively. You,
1: as, as hard as you Yeah, <laughs> step number one. We tend to get impatient with the sander, and the first thing we do is we sort of bear down on it a little bit. Um, this, this sort of it it defeats the action of the random orbit. So basically, it's spinning as well as sort of rotating in an oscillating pattern, so you don't get straight circle marks. You It does, like you mentioned, these little pigtail things. Uh, the problem with pushing down too hard is is you limit the travel of the sander head across the surface. The second thing we do when we get a little impatient, you start moving that sander faster than you want to. You actually want to move it at a really slow rate so that the sander can complete its sanding pattern on any given surface before you move ahead to a fresh surface. So lighten up, slow down it sounds counterintuitive to getting your work done but it's the only way the sander can really properly sand and that's going to eliminate a bunch of those pigtail marks the second thing
0: so let the weight of the sander do its work
1: and go slow i I think it's like you know a foot every 10 seconds and if you try to move your hand you know kind of count to 10 before it gets to a foot you'll get just how slow you need to be going there. And if you're doing a big tabletop or something, it just feels excruciatingly slow, but you gotta do it. The second thing, um, I agree with staining. Uh, Staining, you need to stop at a certain scratch pattern um, so that the stain will adhere and lodge in those scratches and give you the color that you want. And most professional finishers say go to 150 and that's gonna give you a good scratch pattern to hold that stain for you. Here's a trick, is go through your random orbits, light pressure, slow it down, go through 150. When you're done there, don't pick up a scraper, never pick up a hand plane on a surface that's been sanded because those abrasives that are lodged in the surface are gonna dull your plane blade instantly. (laughs) Plus you have some cross grain joints at your, you know, on the corners of these frames. So really in a production setting, a hand plane really doesn't have a place in that setting. Scraper, you're still gonna have to follow sandpaper. Here's what you do. Pick up some sheets of 150 grit sandpaper. The last grit you stop random orbit sanding at, um, get a sanding block and sand with the grain with the same grit that you follow with the random orbit sander. And that should hopefully, those two things, light pressure, go slow, finish up by hand, sanding with the grain with the same grit you stop at. It doesn't take much. You should be in good shape.
0: I mean, it doesn't take much with hand sanding. It's no. just a little bit of a touch-up at the end. Yep. Uh, okay. All right, well, um, let's head into our first segment of the day, and that's going to be all-time favorite technique of all time for this week, where we sing the praises of our most, you know, I don't, yes. I don't, I'm just tired of saying that. No, I'd like to hear it, say it. Where we sing the praises of our most beloved, cherished tools, or techniques, sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh,
1: Mike. Yes.
0: How's your planer doing?
1: Uh, awesome, thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, I uh actually this week I, I I had started on a commission to do a little wall uh hung tool cabinet. So um it seems like whenever I start a commission. Wait a minute, wait a minute,
0: wait a minute. That's interesting. Yes. That obviously this person is a woodworker. Yes. But they want to commission somebody else to to do their their tool cabinet. That's interesting.
1: Yes. This person is actually a guitar maker. Oh. So I guess they, they lack, you know, the type of equipment or setup in order to make their own cabinet. Um, so number one, um, so I think that's why, you know, they, they came to me and number two, it's like, uh, that's very stressful making something for a guitar maker because you know, the, the level of exactness and precision that a guitar maker works to, um, I try to be as precise as I can, but it isn't like. Guitar quality precise Mm so I'm a little stressed out about doing my best work for this gentleman I I really want to do a good job So basically what that means is I'm trying to step up my game as I'm I'm making this and for instance One thing I did is I've I've been making do with my crosscut sled which is a little wiggly It's a little bit sloppy, but I know how to hold it just right and angle it just right to make that 90 degree cut I said forget it make a new crosscut sled so I spent a half afternoon making a new crosscut sled That's nice. The second thing is my planer. I changed out the knives in my planer with these disposable knives where they have this little guy that that clips in and it makes it a lot easier to change out the knives and I can flip them and get a second edge on them. That's all cool. The problem is when I changed out to these disposable knives, I noticed that the cutter head wasn't cutting perfectly parallel to the bed of the planer, which is problematic but it was so slight maybe a thousand a couple thousands side to side so if i'm planning a full width 13 inch board you there would be a noticeable difference mm-hmm. and like panel glue ups there's a little bit of a ridge because uh, the boards aren't perfectly you know faces or, or parallel but it's something where i've kind of again i've been living with it because narrower stock well it's not that big of an issue it hasn't really thrown anything off i've been living with it even though it's bugged me so i finally said I gotta fix this, but I'm not a machine guy. I can't get in there. I don't know how to adjust all the bicycle chains and the four little sprockets in the corners to sort of line up my cutter head with my bed. That's like way beyond me. But um, then I thought about it. A while back, I, I put in a half-inch thick piece of MDF on the bed of the planer with a little cleat on the end to keep it in place just to give me smoother cuts and eliminate snipe. It works really well and I thought about it. I said what if I take that cleat off, I lower my cutter head down and I just take a skim cut across this MDF board, now my board even though it's not the top face is not going to be parallel to the bed of the planer, it is going to be parallel to the cutter head, yep. to the knives. So I did it. I, you know, I don't typically like to put MDF. I was going to I was gonna ask
0: you that because I knew somebody's going to go, oh, dude, there's yeah. rocks in that. No, there MDF. Just,
1: I did it, and I said, okay, it's good. And um, because it, um, you only have to do it once, anyhow. just once on one face, and because that left it a little bit fuzzy, I, I actually flipped it upside down, and I have my good, you know, outer face of MDF up. However, then I reattached the cleat, but now the top of that MDF is dead parallel to my cutter head and it was a great fix for my planer that involved no machine work nuts bolts and that greasy stuff that gets all over your fingers so I'm I'm very happy with it
0: well I am uh, building more drawers for another built-in cabinet in my house oh cool and
1: um, where's this going uh,
0: this is going in the living room okay and uh, I had to basically i just i'm using uh, mechanical drawer slides yes. i built a box and then i'm putting a false front on the drawer boxes yeah so i had to um i, I it's a cock beaded drawer front so i actually made the fronts out of a good quality um multi-ply okay and then i wanted to veneer the fronts and then i was going to cock around the edges to hide the plywood oh nice so i was going to set up the vacuum veneer press and you know Shave some stuff down and glue it on that way, but I just, oh, i don 't feel like setting this whole thing up so um, then the next idea was, well, then i I guess I get uh, the you know I put the veneer over the false front piece and then I a couple of plywood calls and then I glue them all up but i 've got to do this four times, so okay. i don 't feel like doing that, so then I realized, wait a minute, I can take one piece of the the wood that 's going to veneer the front of each drawer, yes, right now imagine I make a sandwich. Um, I bring I glue my birch multiply to one side of this veneer piece which is thick. It's like a half inch thick. Okay. And then I um I glue another piece of plywood onto the other side. So now I have a sandwich, right?
1: With a drawer face in between. In between. Okay.
0: And then I resought it. And then I just planed it down until it was like a sixteenth of an inch thick, the veneer piece basically it's basically sawing the two drawers just apart. Sawed it apart and then boom done okay. so i got two done at once so your drawers so must not
1: easier. be very deep very deep yeah oh these are just the fronts and it's not the, the whole fronts. i thought the whole drawer nope. was all together. okay false so front front east side oh easy oh, and cool. then i just
0: hide the plywood edge with uh, oh, cool. the conch beating so but then
1: you can just run it through your planer damn. afterwards with the plywood <laughs> side down
0: yep oh. well no with the yeah with the plywood side down yeah. and then i cleaned it up a little bit with a hand plane and I get this nice thin veneer. Wow. And you get two at once, and then you can t-
1: dial. it. You could even dial it down to a thinner veneer if you want, without having to take a thin cut on your. Yeah. On your exactly. Veneer. Wow, that's really yeah. smart.
0: Yeah, I was proud of myself.
1: Yeah. And then
0: I realized that my, as you told me, my, my, my uh, planer knives were dull, uh, because um, I have a, a planer that I had. So, I, well, okay, let me back this up. I started playing some wood the other weekend. And like all of a sudden, it starts bogging down. Like the feed starts bogging. They're slipping because like, they're, they're rubber slipping, feed rollers, right? right? Yeah, they're slipping. I'm like, what the heck is going on? I haven't, and my blades can't be dull because I haven't put that much wood through here. Right. And uh, so I start talking to Mike, and Mike tells me, no, it sounds like your your knives are dull. I'm like, there's no way my knives are dull. <laughs> I haven't used it that much. You know, I've maybe gone through a third of the life of the of the knives. But then it hit me. I bought my planer. Um, after a tool test at fine woodworking a couple, you know, I don't know, a year ago. Um, so it had been put through its paces already, planing, like, tons oh, of everything. wood. everything. I
1: think we threw hickory, Green, Yes, and then I know, realized, tattoo. like, oh, wait yeah. a
0: minute. They were already, like, two-thirds <laughs> beat up. Yeah, eBay yes. all sorts of <laughs> stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so anyhow, that was that was a little embarrassing.
1: So but so the new blades fixed it? It's
0: fine. I popped it. That's, nice. that's, that was uh, the nice, the planer I have... It's so easy to – it comes with a little wrench in the top, and you just, bink, pop out the screws, take the top off, pop out the blades, flip them around to the other side because it's a two-sided blade. Right. And then just pop the cover back on, and you're done in, like, 15 minutes. And that was the first wow. time you changed your plane. That was the first time I changed cool. them, yeah. yeah. All right. It's not like – I mean, the older planers – I mean, yours is a bit more – before you got those disposable blades, oh, I horrible more...
1: spring-mounted playing yeah. blades and the planer. There's a little narrow channel, and you—it's hard to get in there. They give you this dumb little Y-shaped tool to supposedly set the knives right, and you never do. And that is a pain yeah. in the yeah. And you always have to balance the how far am I off versus how much time will it take to readjust them versus. What is the probability that I will actually improve the situation by adjusting? Or it make one it worse. Time, yeah. Right? Which is why I went with those, that disposable thing yeah. anyway, which is a, but what I really want to do, and I kinda hate to do it because I invested so money in these disposable knives, I really want to yank the head out, throw in a, a um, segmented segment a cutter head into the planer.
0: But that's like five hundred bucks, right? No,
1: it's more like nine hundred bucks because it's an old planer. And that's the problem. Ooh. Okay. Nine hundred bucks to outfit an old thirteen Buy a inch new planer. planer. Or fifteen hundred bucks for Grizzly fifteen-inch segmented uh, cutterhead planer. So sell the old
0: sense. one for a couple hundred bucks, buy a new one. Yes, done.
1: I like that. Okay, maybe next time we chat, I'll have a new planer. No, nah, I don't think so.
0: Um, all right. So next question comes from Tuck. I really like that name, by the way. Um, okay. Sometimes I just think it's a cool name. <laughs> uh, sometimes my projects seem to take forever. Do you have any advice about working more efficiently when woodworking? Uh, so we were talking about Tuck's question. Yeah,
1: you had some thoughts on this. I,
0: yeah, because I've been experiencing this in my shop at home, um, in comparison to the shop at Fine Woodworking. Yep. So I've, I've been setting. Everybody knows this, I've been setting up my basement shop, and it's largely set up, but I don't have all of my, um, you know, all of my various machinery stands set up yet. So as an example, I've got my joiner on one end of the shop on wheels, and then I've got my planer over on a random table that's in front of a cabinet that every time I want to open this (laughs) cabinet door, I have to shove the the lunchbox planer aside a little bit to open. My point being that not everything is fully set up to where it's in its most efficient um, place. Like in a kitchen, they talk about when you design a kitchen, you have this triangle from the from the refrigerator over to the oven, over to the sink, and to make you work more efficiently in the kitchen. Yes. My shop, even though I have all these great tools and they're all well-tuned and and they function properly, it's just not an efficient use of space where they're set up currently because I don't have everything set up currently. Yeah. So I've noticed I work, 10 times more efficiently when I'm in the shop at Fine Woodworking because everything is has its place. It's properly set up on a table um, in the right location, whereas my basement shop, it's just not there yet. Yes. So that, I'm starting to notice, is a huge deal. And that just comes with time, like figuring out where you need everything to be located optimally um, and then building the, the stands and, and the things that you need. Um, so that's that's what I'm working on in the next couple of weeks is I have to build a big, long uh, stand for my miter saw, underneath that my jointer is going to be on wheels, and then next to it my planer is going to be on wheels too. Cool. And everything's going to be right there at cool. the ready. Um, but that, so that's one thing I've noticed. I and think you had something. Yeah, too.
1: no, that's a really good point. In that, I think none of us um, work under ideal shop conditions you don't
0: have the money to work under ideal conditions. like what does that
1: mean you know so yeah so i think the shop is always going to be a limitation and i think the idea i when i redid my shop um i sort of realized that perfect was the enemy of good and that what we're looking for in setting up our shop is 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 sort of we're we're shooting for optimal conditions meaning the best given what we have to work with and where we're working in so yeah i think every little bit helps to definitely get more time in your shop but the other thing tuck that i think when you say that projects take forever a lot of times that means that you know hobbyists if we're trying to sneak time into shop here and there is we probably spend more time not woodworking than we actually do woodworking and that um time in the shop is, is usually at a premium for, for me, I'm able to sneak a couple extra hours a day. And now that my kids are a little bit older, but when I had, you know, a young family in a more than full-time job, even getting out to the shop a half hour at a time, was, was sort of a, a big thing. And I found that to make it worth my while, number one, <clears throat> probably the most important thing, if you have a limited time to spend in your shop, think about woodworking, while you're away from your shop as much as you can. While you're giving the kids a bath, while you're at work in a board meeting, you should, I do it while I'm falling you asleep should be thinking about woodworking. That's right. Whenever you're not in the shop. So by the time you get in the shop, you know what you want to be doing. You don't do not waste any time in the shop thinking about what should I be doing. You should know what you're doing. And the second thing is, this is a little bit tough, is is maybe when you get into a shop, whether you're in there for fifteen minutes or two hours come up with something that you can, a task that you can accomplish in its entirety in that time. And a lot of times this means breaking off less to chew on than you'd like to, when you get into the shop, Oh, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to prep all these parts. I'm going to glue this up. It'll be done. It's like, no, maybe, you know, work on prepping parts. I'm going to come out, I'm going to sharpen my hand plane, I'm going to plane the faces of my aprons or my aprons and my legs for a table. Stop it there. Whatever. You don't want to get out there, get halfway through something, have to stop, come back, and then your tools are sort of out and about, and now you have to remember where you stopped or started, and it just becomes a mess. So
0: plan and focus. So let me give yes. you the, the way it works at Ed's house Okay, uh, where I'm constantly How do you distracted. put this into practice? So I go in the basement into the shop. Uh, I'm going to go and glue up the drawers for the, whatever, the vanity I've been building forever. Um, I'm going to go glue up the drawers today. I've got everything cut and ready to go. Yes. All right. So now I've got my parts on the bench. Now I'm getting my glue. I got my glue clamps are here. Good. I'm ready to go. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? I wanted to rip a board for some trim on the garage that I want to put up this week. Let me just do that really quick. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess now I'm ready to do the glue up. Papa, what are you doing? Like ah, oh, go upstairs. Okay, I'll be right back to do that. Nope, didn't get anything done. That's okay. I laid out some stuff on the bench top, and then I ripped a piece of wood, and then I never did what I meant to accomplish because I didn't focus. Like I'm just gonna do this. God.
1: <laughs> Anyhow, um, you and got I, you got something done, just not what you intended to get
0: done. No, I mean I, I get distracted really easily, and it, it's all the worse by the fact that my daughter. Um, She has a dollhouse up in the living room Uh and then somebody gave us, bequeathed us, you know, a hand-me-down dollhouse. So now we have two dollhouses. So I was going to get rid of the second one. I told my daughter, I was like, well, we can give it to another kid who doesn't have one and maybe they don't have a lot of toys and, you know, and she was game for that. Okay. But then she started coming down to the shop when I'm working and then I have to occupy her. So now I have the workshop dollhouse. Yes. Stays down there. I put a pair of cans on her ears. Oh, nice. There you go. And she plays with her dollhouse while I'm doing whatever.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Double duty, Um, double duty. It all counts, yeah. And one more thing is, is when you're uh, finished with your time in the shop and you got to head on out, spend five minutes and put something away, clean something up, sweep the floor, put a tool away. Whenever I leave my shop and all my tools are out and about, I feel like, okay, this craft has defeated me. I'm leaving, you know, with my head, my tail between my legs, and it's like. If I can somehow get my tools put away, re-assemble uh, you know, assemble some semblance of order in my shop on my way out, it makes the next venture into the shop much easier. I get going faster, and I feel like I'm more in control of the situation if I can clean up just a little bit.
0: Here's the other thing connected to that. Yeah. So in a situation like mine where you have a dual-purpose space because, for example, my shop is in the basement, and I have like – Two-thirds of the basement to use for my shop. But I also have storage down there for yes. household items and the washer dryers down there. So I need to maintain it clean. Yes. Um, so that that gives me the you know the impetus to maintain it clean. But every time I go downstairs, say to put a load of laundry in, I always put something away. Oh if cool. I'm in that basement, something gets put away. And I do the same thing even downstairs in the living room. If there's something downstairs that has to be put away upstairs, and I have to be going upstairs, I always take something with me. There's always something going up. And, yes. uh, but that becomes really important with a basement shop. Um, so, okay, next question. Comes from another Matt. we got a lot of Matts this week. Um, Matt writes, love the show, even though you have guilted me into buying a couple of hand planes, water stones, honing guide, and several other things that I now love. My question is this. If I'm looking for a 25-degree bevel on my hand plane and plan on putting a micro bevel on it, should I grind the main bevel to be, say, 20 degrees and then hone the micro bevel at 25 degrees? Uh,
1: Short answer. Yes, yeah.
0: Um, I do this with, I hone at 25 and then micro bevel up closer to 30.
1: Yep. Um, 20 degrees, you know, um, grinding at 20 degrees, you're removing a lot of stock. <clears throat> you don't have to go all the way down to 20 you can sort of split the difference maybe grind at it, it 22 or 23 degrees and then put a secondary bevel at 25 or grind at 25 and instead of going to 30 put a 27 degree micro bevel on there um, just to um, not have to grind it at such a shallow angle and remove all that stock. Um, the only drawback between uh, putting a secondary bevel the angle slightly closer to your primary is that sort of uh, angle of intersection is a little bit more shallow. So that uh, secondary bevel is going to get wider faster with each sharpening. Um, so you may have to grind you know, between uh, honings more frequently at a, a shallower difference between those angles. But it's not that big of a deal. So if I wanted to really go 25, I might go yeah, maybe grind at 22, hone at 25.
0: Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'd say it's time for our second segment, and that's going to be Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we cop to our most embarrassing and boneheaded <laughs> shop moves. Um, Mike, I'll let you go first oh, thank mine you. is rather embarrassing.
1: I appreciate that. This is embarrassing kind of on two counts. I don't know
0: what uh, this is either. You didn't tell me.
1: Well, it goes back to this uh, tool cabinet that I'm making to the utmost uh, you know, precision that I can. So I'm being really, really careful with this tool cabinet. Um, It's got a dovetail case, that's done, and then each door is built as a dovetail box with a frame and panel front to it. So I I have basically three dovetail kind of boxes that are all done. I took a, you know, obviously I spent some good time uh, in care planing and dovetailing the very best of my abilities. I'm really proud of these dovetails. So. I had to put them aside to prep for some classes and prep for this video workshop we're going to be working on. Um, And so they're off to the side assembled and sitting there and they're sitting there and I hadn't given them a thought for a day or two. Then I looked at them all put together very, very precisely. And then I remembered I did not plane the outside of these surfaces before I assembled them. And it's like, Ah, oh, that's kind of a big, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal because I'm going to flush all the joinery anyway. It's just a lot more planing as a big box as opposed to planing individual DS. pieces. So so it's like, okay, I talked myself off the ledge there. It's okay. We're all good. Then I thought, Mike,
0: uh-oh. You hard.
1: didn't plane the inside faces of these. I plane the inside faces of the pins boards before I dovetail them so my dovetails stay nice and tight, but I didn't plane The inside faces of the long Mm. tailboards and and the planer at the shop were all like, you know, it was not a good surface. And I'm killing myself and I'm about ready just to, well, I'm not ready to do anything. I'm just very, very excited at this point. Oh, then I'm, you know, scraping to the inside of the corner, standing, and they said, Mike, Mike, (laughs) what? Mike, these are dry fit. You haven't glued these up yet.
0: Oh my gosh, you were tired, man. Settle down,
1: my friend. It's all <laughs> good. So the smooth move was a smooth move. What that wasn't, smooth but it's move almost squared. But it's almost worse because I started freaking out over something that was was a non-issue. So, yeah. Then it was time to shut off the lights and and uh, sweep the floor and go to bed.
0: Well, it sounds like you might have been a little bit tired when this occurred. Yes, because it just seemed like one of those th- those moves that only happen when your brain isn't firing on it's, all cylinders. Yes. Mine is very similar in that regard. Um, I'm sure everyone has used a feather board at the table saw before. Yes, sure. And so, so there are these feather boards out there that uh, are, you know, double sided. So the you can conceivably um, put the feathers against the workpiece that you want to, you know jam up against the rip fence in the wrong direction so
1: the feathers are aiming toward you instead of away from you as you make the cut
0: that's the thing so i set my feather board up and i'm i'm trying to you know rip this small piece of stock i'm like what is wrong with this piece of crap it's not like do i need to lubricate this and it i was probably down there for like a good three minutes like why is this not working what a piece of crap and getting more and more irate until, yes, I realized that the feathers were facing towards me, and I was kind of fighting against them. Doing their, doing their them. job, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Oh my god, it was so embarrassing. Um, so that's my, <laughs> and I've done this on more than one occasion. That's what's really embarrassing. Mm. Um, but that's my, that's my smooth. So I really had two smooth moves. I have this one, and the planer is a bit of a smooth move, like not realizing like, the knives uh. aren't sharp because it, you guys plowed through a whole ton of like. You know, white oak and teak, and you know, yeah, during pla- the tool Yeah, planer's
1: forgivable, but this is one of my favorite smooth moves. Oh. Because you figured it out. At some oh, point yeah, I did. That, oh.
0: And It was yeah. really embarrassing. Yeah. Like, oh.
1: Anyhow. Because uh, the featherboard, basically, it's got these little flexible fingers, and you, and you cut them on, on an angle so that, um, you know, as you push, the fingers hold the stock, they they, they want sort to bend of spring into tension, and, yeah. they, and they allow the piece to go forward while keeping it against the fence. How? And the good thing is um, you can't pull the stock back. They're almost an anti-kickback feature because... You
0: can if you pull pull or push
1: hard enough. <laughs> so if you do mount the fingers in the wrong direction, it, it will sort of inhibit forward progress <sighs> to a certain extent. I didn't awesome. pass physics, so... That's great. Maybe that has Love. something
0: to do with it. Uh, all right, so the next question of the day comes from Kyle, who writes, what's the lowdown on the various clamps out there? I've been buying pipe clamps because they're cheap and work well. Yeah. Is it worth spending a bazillion dollars on parallel bar clamps that cost upwards of 30 to 60 bucks a pop, depending oh, yeah. on size? absolutely. Also, what advantages uh, do the different clamp styles have? What limitations will I run into if all I have are pipe clamps? What do you guys use and why? So I'll let you start. Yeah, here. good
1: news, Kyle. You're going to like this answer. Um, it's not about a choice. You need lots of different kinds of clamps. So that's good news. Yes, that's awesome <laughs> news. You need lots of these. Anytime you know, I can honestly say, yeah, you need more tools. I'm happy to to uh, inform Craigslist and garage sales, Kyle. Yeah. Um, basically, think of clamps. Clamps um, uh, in terms of clamping capacity. Uh, you either have, uh, you know, the depth of the jaw or the distance between the jaws. So if you think of a pipe clamp, it's really a very shallow capacity because the jaws are maybe, what are they, maybe two inches high yeah. at the most. Um, but in terms of the capacity uh, between the jaws, sky's the limit. Just get as long of a piece of pipe as you want. So for something, like a
0: 12-foot pipe clamp. Yeah,
1: so for something like big panel glue-ups or something, you know, thin panels, really wide, pipe clamps are awesome but maybe if you're doing a case glue up or something where you want to reach deeper into the case to apply clamp pressure uh, pipe clamps aren't going to do it for you so in, in F style clamp with the deeper jaws um, can really reach in and put pressure where you want it so they're definitely uh, put those on your shopping list and uh, in addition the the parallel jaw clamp which is sort of a style of F clamp but in, instead of having those little pads at the ends the the whole jaw uh, applies pressure all at once, and those parallel jaws. Um, Ed, you were talking about this how with the F-style clamp and little twisty pad, they can sort of move stuff out me. of position. Right, as you clamp. because
0: as you're screwing the handle in, uh, that's attached to the inner. I don't want to say jaw, but the little inner pad. Sure. You're screwing. You're turning it clockwise, and that is in effect turning the pad, which can cause the workpiece to shift. Yes. Um, But they sell small, parallel jaw clamps that you don't have that problem with at all.
1: Yeah, because the the surfaces of the jaws are stationary. All the twisting is going on inside. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, So the parallel jaw clamps are really good. And also because those broad plastic jaws are non-marring, you can put those right on the workpiece and clamp them down. And you don't have to worry about getting little you know, little clamp pads or little pieces of wood in there to keep from getting dense in your wood. So they're good too. And in addition to that, I like having some one-handed clamps around, whether it's those sort of those squishy Irwin speed clamp kind of guys. Um, a lot of times I'll use those to sort of clamp a workpiece in position in order to get some heavier duty clamps on it. Or even, I like a couple different sizes of the little um, spring clamps. They look like big clothespins with the little, are awesome. uh, rubber pans on the ends. I have those strong. in a couple sizes. They can be really strong. A lot of times for, um, like, gluing in drawer guides, kickers and yeah. runners on a small table, I'll just use spring clamps for that, and it applies to plenty, plenty of pressure. So pipe clamps are good, uh, F clamps, uh, parallel clamps, spring clamps, one-handed clamps. Yeah, you really need a, a whole assortment.
0: The one thing I would say you want to stay away from are the, um, the very inexpensive... Uh, they're essentially F-style clamps, but they're long, they're like 24 or 36 with inches long. With a thin bar. With a very thin bar, which means when you start to ratchet up the pressure, the bar just bows. Yes. And it's just crap. I yep. bought probably four of those when I first started doing projects, I mean, like years and years and years ago, um, and I they still sit and collect dust. I can't, it's rare that I have a use for them, unless it's just very light pressure on something.
1: Yeah. So. Here's my clamp collection, and it's actually fairly meager compared to a lot of shops I've been in. But just to give you sort of an idea of a combination of clamps that that works, I've got four pipe clamps, which are probably roughly six feet long, four to six feet long. I have four parallel jaw clamps that are 42 inches long. I have four parallel jaw clamps that are 30 inches long. And then I've got a variety of f-style clamps some they must be 22 24 inch heavy duty guys i've got four 12 inch heavier duty f-style clamps and then probably some 12 and 18 inch lighter duty f-style clamps along with four squishy clamps and let's say uh, a dozen spring clamps in two different sizes i would call them where the handles are maybe six inches long, and then some where the handles are maybe three or four inches long, little tiny guys. And that's, and I get by pretty well with those guys. And a couple of the wooden, what do you call those? Uh, oh, hand uh, screws. Hand screws. Hand screws. You know, with those the wooden jaws. Uh, I got a couple, few of those guys too.
0: I, I I've, every clamp I own I've gotten either from some sort of garage sale or like a, uh, a junk store hmm. kind of place. Uh, I have a I have a. Supplier, that guy he buys out of states. Oh, okay. And I he just loads a warehouse full of crap, and I go there like once a month looking for different woodworking bits and bobs. And uh... I mean, he'll sell me, you know, thirty three foot long, nice cast iron pipe clamps. You know, I pick them up for like three four bucks a pop. Nice, very nice. Um, so let's let's move on to our last question of the day. This is another one from Tuck, um, and it was a another really cool question, and it's um what are the biggest woodworking myths people just won't stop practicing the other day i saw the finish both sides dictum being touted again uh, which has been dismissed by folks like bob flexner on various occasions it made me wonder about many others so the finish both sides dictum let's let's start there um there is this old it's similar to the idea of how you have to veneer if you're veneering you've got to veneer both sides otherwise you're Workpiece is going to warp and twist with uneven moisture absorption, right? And that's true. And that's true. Um, the so then in finishing, a lot of people say we've got to finish both sides of the piece of wood because again, you're sealing one end up from some you know moisture penetration, but the other side is soaking up moisture. It's going to it's going to twist and so on and so forth. With tabletops, I always at least apply a couple of finishes on the underside. Yep. Um, but what about um, you know other situations like it's a, some sort of a cabinet where the inside is. Is ne- it's maybe all drawers, the inside's never gonna be seen. Yes. Uh, what are you doing there, and why?
1: Um, well, I think you've made fun of me for this before. Well, I mean, I think the big question is, um, <clears throat> the board is, is going to move, it's gonna cup and such just through um, seasonal humidity changes. In a finish, except for like multiple coats of like a latex paint finish, um, most finishes we put on, On wood for fine furniture is moderately inhibiting uh, moisture movement in the stock Mm -hmm. meaning no matter how much finish we put on it's gonna move a little bit seasonally and we're always looking for mechanical ways to constrict the movement of the wood uh, in ways we don't want it to meaning cupping and warping and allow it to move in ways that it's gonna have to move which is you know across the grain seasonally it's gonna expand and contract so we want to Allow it to expand and contract while staying flat. Uh, f- applying finish on both faces is going to sort of mitigate the problem of warping because, to a certain extent, it's going to inhibit the um, the, the moisture movement on each face. Although moist, most of the the movement uh, is happening through the end grain. But um, so let's say you've got a a case top where the top is. Um, exposed to the air, but the inside, it's a box of drawers. So really that inside is protected from a lot of of really drastic humidity changes and maybe only exposed to the longer-term, more gradual seasonal changes. So, um, you know, in that case, just the fact that the inside of the case is enclosed, that's sort of doing what that multiple layers of finish are doing on the outside of the case. So it points to a bigger problem where a lot of these myths I wouldn't say are myths or mistakes people make, but it's more of a misunderstanding of the context in which that information is given or that technique is used. Um, and that, you know, for instance, there's about a billion and a half ways to cut dovetails, for instance, and and every method involves a different series of techniques. So someone says, um, You're scribing your pins, you cut your pins first, or you cut your tails first, or you're marking your pins with a knife, whereas I saw another guy do it with a pencil. And if you isolate each one of those things, I could explain a sequence in which any of those individual tasks would be correct or incorrect, depending on the context in which they're used. So Mm -hmm. the bottom line is a lot of these, we take certain things as, um, as um, conventional wisdom either this is always do this or never do this when the the bigger question is usually it depends on what you're doing and how it relates to everything else you're doing it so a lot of these myths are not myths they're just according to the way someone works certain things are going to work for someone where they're not going to work for someone else and vice versa so Uh, I always take a bigger picture approach, like for instance, just like sharpening, again, a million ways to sharpen. What I would do anytime you're trying to learn something or relearn something or learn a different way to attempt something, go all in. If you're looking at the way Paul Sellers sharpens a chisel. and you want to try it, try it, follow it. Don't mix his method with other people's methods, learn his method and don't say, I tried it to see if it works or not. Nope. Try it until it works for you. Mm -hmm. Try any method until it works for you. And you have an understanding of why this person goes about sharpening or cutting dovetails or doing anything in in a particular method. And once you understand it, now you can put that into context with other methods that other people use. So I'd say, you know, Learn five ways to cut dovetails, and then you're in a better position to see what works good for you as opposed to trying to pick and choose. Well, I scribe my tails the way this person does. I saw the way this person does or moved the way this person does. Um, learn all those techniques, and then you can start to mix and match. And pretty soon, you're, you're the one writing articles for fine woodworking, and that's pretty awesome.
0: I, well, <clears throat> Tuck mentioned the, um, the finish both sides dictum. I have another one. Okay. No sanding after hand planing.
1: Oh yeah, that is a good one. <clears throat> yeah, you're you're really um yes, the understanding there is that um you just got a glass smooth finish. What are you doing? You're you're ruining that that surface um by sanding after hand planing. Um that's that is a good one. That's absolutely true. No, that's not absolutely true um i know you from time to time do there i think there's a misunderstanding about um what a hand plane is doing and what sandpaper is doing Mm -hmm. in that uh, both tools uh, uh when we're we're prepping a surface we're doing two things we're flattening it meaning we're removing dips and hollows and snipe and then we're smoothing it meaning we're refining the scratch pattern uh, sandpaper is really good at smoothing surfaces. It ain't so hot at flattening surfaces. A hand plane is really good at flattening surfaces and can leave a smooth surface, but it can also leave tear out in plane tracks, so mm. not necessarily smooth. So a hand plane is really good at flattening, so you can flatten a surface, and then you can refine that surface with sandpaper without taking it out of flat. And, and um, a lot of the qualities you get with a hand plane we ascribe to a, this scratch-free surface where it's been sliced instead of abraded. But really, the the visual quality we're getting from a hand plane comes from the fact that the hand plane is giving us a dead flat surface. So when we apply a somewhat reflective surface on top, a finish on top, the reflections in the surface are true. They're not distorted. So you think of a regular mirror versus a funhouse mirror. So when you see a piece of woodworking and... and whether we're conscious of it or not, if the reflections are accurate, we there's a certain fineness or crisp, crispness we attribute to this piece of furniture. And in a way, it has to do with a hand plane getting things flat, but it doesn't have anything to do with that scratch, that final surface left by it. So, um, So the idea that you're inhibiting... The quality of the surface you've imparted by hand plane by sanding afterwards isn't really true as long as you're not taking the surface out of flat by continuing to sand.
0: Well, what, let's say uh, we're talking about cherry and you've just hand planed a bunch of pieces, what, and you want to use a bit of sandpaper to refine things a bit more. Uh, What grit are we talking about starting from in that situation?
1: You know, it it depends on your routine, how the surface you're expecting to get from a hand plane. If you really sharpen, sharpen, sharpen your hand plane and you're looking for a glass smooth surface, um, you'll hit it with your hand plane and I'll typically follow up with 320 or 400 grit sandpaper. And really what I'm doing there is I'm really highlighting any areas of tear out because the swarf from the Mm -hmm. sandpaper will stick in the little areas of tear out. It'll highlight these little white dots. So, So once I've done that, I'll grab my scraper and I'll scrape those areas. Because now that I've sanded it, I can't go back with my hand plane. Mm. Uh, It's going to dull my hand plane. So I'll scrape those areas of tear out and then follow up with the fine sandpaper again. And then finish. And the finish will raise the grain because uh, it's going to lock those fibers in place and swell the fibers. So even if it was dead smooth after the first coat of finish, it isn't going to be smooth. So you need to sand that again. So really there's a couple few... Layers of sanding that I typically almost always do after hand planing. Um, If it's a non-critical surface like table legs or aprons, um, I'll hand plane and just go right to Mm. finish as long as I'm I'm confident that the wood is well-behaved and there isn't any tear-out. And even in the finishing process, it always involves either a sanding between coats at some point or a wet sanding at some point in the finishing process. All right. There you go.
0: Listen, people. Every week we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email. And every week we acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement or constructive criticism up there. Um, Now listen, from time to time, I like to air our dirty laundry. So let's start with the bad and move to the good. All right. Robert Weathers wrote, Rambling, poorly formatted, subject matter lightly discussed, very little true discussion concerning woodworking. Everything seems to be an attempt at humor dumb i'd fire these guys in fact i am firing these guys oh yeah
1: i would say this but <sighs> pa- this particular podcast is the exact opposite of that and 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 typically the more i find myself talking um
0: He's not listening, though, Mike. The, the more, <laughs> I think the
1: more boring the podcast is, and, and certainly the, the less entertaining. So I think this one, the needle probably swung way too far to the <laughs> yeah, other yeah. side. So my apologies this time around.
0: So here's, here it is from Smitzilla. This is The Polar Opposite. Brilliant. Love the show. Dave. So there you go. Shop Talk Live, a place of polar opposite viewpoints and there interpretations. Uh, with that... We're about wrapped up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be we'll be back again in two weeks on April 24th, hopefully 2015. Hopefully
1: Matt will be a sprung from the slammer at that point, fully clothed. Or
0: hopefully not. And sober. <laughs> in the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes. And by all means, click that five-star rating unless you're Robert Weathers. Don't forget to send your quest because he is not going to be leaving us a five-star rating <laughs> anytime soon. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Officers found Kenny, who was naked except for a pair of sneakers, running in traffic (laughs) along Broward Boulevard early Saturday morning. Kenny explained that, quote, if I got hit by a car...